0: Do you think Mayakovsky would fuck a robot? Probably. I think so. I think so too. Uh, I think he'd fuck anything. I think. He'd I think. I song. think
1: he would fuck a robot, and then he'd be really disappointed.
2: <laughs>
3: <Not with laughs> the Westworld robots.
2: Yeah, the Westworld robots would probably be disappointed with him. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I suspect that the oh, women he had sex with here, were but... also
1: disappointed with him. So there's <laughs> that.
0: <absolute> Micro penis <laughs> for sure. Oh
1: my God.
4: Welcome to The Pointless Century, where we discuss literature, politics, and culture in an attempt to figure out what modernism was, what the 20th century meant, and whether they even mattered. thinking about the many faces of soviet poster woman lily brick the role of materialism in mayakovsky's poetry the difference between old wheat and new wheat and as always communism
1: welcome to the pointless century i'm your host frank fucile as of now, still award-winning visiting assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. I prefer he, him pronouns, and you can check out my writing in places like Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment, Bright Lights Film Journal. You can find my poetry in the Locust Review most recently. I'm here with our special guest, Alexander Billet.
2: I'm a writer, artist, musician. I sort of, when it comes to my writing, I try to do a little bit of everything, but mostly I'm known for writing nonfiction. Most recently, I've been in the uh, Los Angeles Review of Books, talking about the work of Mark Fisher, Salvage, talking about the different radical and left-wing movements in Los Angeles where I live. And I show up pretty frequently in Jacobin, talking about music and politics. So yeah, that's kind of what I do. And I'm also on the editorial collective of Locust Review.
1: Of course. And we're here with our esteemed... Research assistants.
0: Anna Wendorf, she, her. Doing a lot now with my academic program in four separate departments now. Most recently, you can find my writing in the Locust Review and then rejected it at a bunch of other places.
1: <laughs> well, you can't find it if it's rejected. You can find it if you're on the editorial staff, I suppose. <laughs> take,
0: the fucking, take the fucking joke. Um, I <laughs> Besides that, I just do painting because I really like it published in NOTA. But yeah, that's about it for me. Rachel Homily, she hers.
3: I'm majoring in secondary Broadfield social studies education with concentrations in history and political science. And I am almost done with my equity, diversity, and inclusion certificates. I only have one piece published, and that is a piece of art in the 2011-2012 Southern Links Anthology. I drew a picture of a guy discovering popcorn in 2012.
1: It sounds beautiful. So today we're here to continue our discussion about Vladimir Vladimirovich Mayakovsky, or Uh Volodya, as his friends called him. Where we left our doomed hero last episode, he was locked in a sort of torturous and I guess for him ultimately unfulfilling (laughs) triangulated relationship free love relationship however we want to put it with lilia brick his sort of editor a hype woman literal communist cover girl anna and- says
3: incel
2: <laughs> he's <laughs> not an
1: incel yeah, the thing is
2: inc- he
1: fucks like, like throughout his life but that doesn't yeah. stop him from being disappointed i don't know yeah. about
2: that. He, he's, he's a, a sad bad. boy anytime you google image search mayakovsky In every single one of the pictures, it's like, you know what it reminds me of is like back when I was a kid and you get the G.I. Joe figure, but then there's also the G.I. Joe figure that's the same character, but decked out for the Arctic. Or decked out for, so like we- He's <laughs> so, the like, same guy, have,
1: but just in different yeah, outfits.
2: Yeah, so, <laughs> so, we have, so we have neutral Mayakovsky who's just like, you know, wearing a suit, but it's not particularly snazzy. Uh, then it's uh, like night on the town, Mayakovsky. Then the, the one where he's wearing that big hat, it's Mayakovsky echo and the bunny man edition.
1: I mean, this showed up as of today on Twitter, the idea is that there are two genres of author photo. I am filled with joy and wonder as if a bird brightly plumed had just alighted on my shoulder or I'm gonna, fuck I'm gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> and Lincoln, I think it's pronounced Mitchell writes where my I'm gonna kill you author's at. And of course somebody
0: flies oh with, mm. with Mayakovsky. Oh my god.
2: And but the thing is other pictures he looks not just like he's gonna kill you but also like he's a bird about to take flight. Yeah,
1: I mean, he can like, sometimes both. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes both. <laughs> so, this was the photo shoot that Rudchenko did for the conversation with the tax man about poetry, where he's mm-hmm. wearing the fedora. There's one where he's like crumpling up like a wad of manuscript papers, too. And obviously there's this really important working relationship between Mayakovsky and Rodchenko. Rodchenko is a sort of avant-garde design artist, like really the premier constructivist designer period, especially during this period it, it, where... He feels
2: it, like the type of artist where it's like, if you've learned any of even just the most basic cursory stuff about art in the Russian Revolution... yeah.
1: You yeah. have certainly- You'd know, you'd learn Rodchenko. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: You've looked at his work. You've looked at El Lissitzky's work, maybe seen some suprematism and some Malevich and things like that. But Rodchenko is almost certainly far none the first one you, you, you learn about when you yeah. learn about visual art in the Russian Revolution.
1: And this is probably Rodchenko's single most famous poster and mm-hmm. to the point where it's been parodied left and right. And I did not realize until I found it under the Lilia Brick Wikipedia mm-hmm. entry but once I look at it, it is, oh, my goodness, it, that is Lily Brick.
2: Yep. She was like the sort of model. Literal.
1: Yeah, yeah. literal yeah. communist poster girl. And here she's demanding Russian books in all branches of knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I love this picture of her because so many pictures of her do look much more in that vein of I'm going to fucking kill you. Mm-hmm. And this one, she she looks joyful. She looks Beautiful. She looks, I don't know, she's she's excited, right? I mean, she's excited about all the books she's gonna get to read, I guess.
2: Mm-hmm. She's enthused by this sort of intellectual festival of the revolution. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
3: She, she kind of reminds me of Rosie the, Rosie mom the Riveter? And Jojo. No, <laughs> Rosie from Jojo Rabbit, the mom. Oh. Have you guys seen that movie? Oh, no.
2: yeah, yeah, it's Scarlett Johansson's character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. I find myself going back and forth about what I think about that movie. It's in many ways. complex. But, it is. It is.
1: I've still not seen it. I suppose we ought to see it probably for this thing we do.
2: It's worth watching. And there's some yeah. genuinely hilarious humor. Oh, yeah. But there's some moments where I found myself asking, okay, is this a parody or is this making light? And mm-hmm. when you're talking about something like the Holocaust, it gets dicey. But I think that part of that has to do with the parameters that have been rearranged around conversations about fascism. And that what has rearranged yeah. those parameters is that it's yeah. contemporary again fascism yeah, is an actual yeah. thing again it's I, you
1: know it's, yeah, yeah we should probably like set aside time to do holocaust comedies cuz it is a whole subgenre
2: we talked about this last time which is that it's very interesting to look at left approaches to aesthetics versus far right approaches to aesthetics today okay and yeah and kind of see a parallel in that in the way that say the Italian futurists and the Russian futurists diverged, you know, like the Italian futurists go full fasc, they embrace Mussolini and things like that, they embrace World War One. Meanwhile, all the futurists back in Russia, most of them are becoming Bolsheviks or joining some faction of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. And like really sort of to them, it's the idea of technology and the speed of technology being used to kind of not subsume humanity like the fascists want, but actually become a supplement for us to become fully human. I think that's actually relevant to the poems that we're going to talk about today because there's a lot of, I think, stereotypes about futurism or presumptions about futurism that we even see in like people who are proclaimed experts about futurism that are very much made problematic or problematized and undermined, frankly, by some of the poems that we see from Mayakovsky that we're going to be talking about today. What Just is to the about presumption
1: you know. about futurism that you see being foiled in, say it's too early to rejoice or order to the army of art or indeed.
2: I think Great Big Hell of a City is the one where I see it, because that is also where you see a very dark portrayal of technology. It's not this one-dimensional celebration. He is looking at ordinary human beings very much crushed under the wheel of the way that the cities are being built. Just backing up for a sec. it was interesting to me looking at these poems one of the things that stuck out to me is how much Mayakovsky becomes kind of spatial in the way that he approaches his images. There's always a very clear setting and a setting that is being transformed. Uh-huh. It made me think, I mean, this is obviously outside of the purview of the 20th century that we're talking about here, but it's interesting to me to, to see him in parallel with someone like Arthur Rembo, who okay. essentially becomes the de facto poet laureate of the Paris commune. And just embraces this complete transformation of Paris. There's an excellent book about Rambeau in the Paris Commune by Kristen Ross called The Emergence of Social Space. And he looks at the fact that one of the things that made Rambeau's poetry so incendiary for its time was the fact that there was actually a conversation and a very radical conversation happening about what is a city how should the city be used should it be under radical democratic control or should its decorations only celebrate empire and you know bureaucracy and things like that so that's how you get things like the toppling of the vendome column and Rambeau's poetry starts to reflect that you see a similar thing i think in mayakovsky where he's talking about the streets are our pallets and everything and you know like i don't want to, to get too far ahead of ourselves but he very much starts to see the city as a reflection of deflected potential for human beings. And Great Big Hell of a City, it's very interesting to look at that in conjunction with Listen, which seems to be far more hopeful about the idea of plucking stars out of the sky and things like that. And these were two poems written in the same year. He seems to be really pleading very sincerely, give us control over history. Give us something... We've seen some amazing human potentials unleashed by the steam engine, all of that type of stuff, the assembly line, but it's meaningless and in fact is actively detrimental to the human race unless it's under mass democratic control.
1: And we see this sort of spatial awareness in the big poem that I kind of wanted to start with, but it's a later poem Pro Eto, or Mm -hmm. That's What, or About This, or About That, depending on your translation, where he's going from Petrograd to Moscow, where he talks about the Arctic rivers in Siberia. He sort of imagines himself basically sort of casting back to his earlier life, going from the Caucasus to Mm -hmm. Moscow. And it's this sort of, because this is published in 23, yeah. 23 so it's yeah. right after the Civil War is over and it's almost like he is trying to with the poem, stitch together the nation mm. that has been sort of rent asunder and is now putting itself back together. And then the way he does it is also again with these technologies where it has all this stuff where he's calling Lily Brick on the phone and it's talking about the phones like burning hot and exploding out of the wall when it's this very hyper language for like what the technology can do. And then it's supplemented by these collages that Richenko does or photo montages is apparently what people were calling them and that are sort of mixing together these you know, relatively mundane photos of him and Lily Brick and then things that look like they're pulled out of maybe encyclopedias or textbooks or stuff mm-hmm. like that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, sort of like yeah. pictures of machines, pictures of bridges. We have the one with the polar bears, but but it's all extremely spatial and it's all sort of ways of imagining the technology overlaid onto the city, overlaid onto geography and so on and so forth. It is worth emphasizing how big of a deal technology in general is in this period. Like We're talking about some massive, massive shifts, and that's always true in any discussion of this period, in any discussion of, say, the First World War, in any discussion of, say, the first half of the 20th century, generally speaking, but especially for Russia, with this background of, was it combined and uneven development? It is worth noting that we're talking about a very rural society. A rural and also in some ways extremely industrialized, as we noted in the last episode. This is the house that Mayakovsky was born in. That's a really it actually, cute house. It doesn't look weird. bad, quite honestly. Yeah. It doesn't look bad, but it certainly does look antiquated in a certain sense. I think he described himself as being of three different nationalities, which is to say that he was from Georgia. But his dad's family was of Cossack descent and his mom's family was of Ukrainian descent. He's described himself as being of three different nationalities in a certain sense, or actually, I guess, four, Russian, Cossack, Ukrainian, and then Georgian. I suppose if we knew more about Russian and Soviet history, this might have more meaning for us, but it's just a way of illustrating the multi-ethnic background of the Russian Revolution, of the Soviet Mm -hmm. Revolution, whatever we want to call it, the Bolshevik Revolution, I guess. And that's also something that's sort of... If we do want to get into our critiques of it, it is something that is worth mentioning. It's a little bit more obvious when you're talking about maybe, for instance, the Jewish experience in the Soviet Union, but certainly the Ukrainian experience as well, where you have what starts out very much as a multi-ethnic uprising to build a multi-ethnic state, and then it very much becomes Russia in the lead and everybody else to the back if not being exploited and, you know, persecuted or genocided. I think that
2: Mayakovsky's, when he's his most elated, is when that democratic, multicultural, multivalent vision seemed like it was actually, that vision was the one that had history's wind to its back. I agree. Um, Because also, it wasn't just Eastern Europe and the Lenin called Russia the prison house of nations. So, you know, you had... Georgia in there and Ukraine and things like that. It wasn't just Eastern Europe, but you have, you know, mass uprisings in Hungary and Germany and France, yeah. Ge- Germany very almost, Europe.
1: almost actually does it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And frankly, if they had and actually been able to support what was essentially at the time the most industrialized nation on the planet, if they would have gone Soviet, which they very nearly did, then we would be talking about an entire different trajectory of history.
1: Yeah. And both Lenin and Trotsky basically said, well, this would be what would make it or break it, whether other nations then go to revolution immediately after. And of course, you have the Freikorps in Germany, basically the kernel of what will be the fascist movement, putting down those communist and socialist uprisings Mm. immediately in 1919. And you have this weird let's just say liberal compromise government in the Weimar Republic that yeah, just can yeah, barely yeah. hang on by the skin of its teeth until <laughs> they can get a popular enough reactionary in there. And then it immediately goes to Nazism.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And 23 is really when the last embers of the German socialist revolution or potential German socialist revolution, because it's in this kind of very, very precarious state from about 1918 through 1923. And this is even after the assassination of Rosa Luxemburg and all of them. But there is a sincere movement and, you know, a back and forth of different factories coming under democratic control and different cities with different street battles sort of popping off. And 23 is when sort of the final nail in that coffin goes in.
1: That's of course, just after the fascists have taken power in Italy. Exactly. So it's, everything's so connected,
2: connected. Yeah. So for revolutionaries in Russia, They see that and they're like, history is about to turn against us in a big way. Uh, And they're right because Stalin is the best position to take. And Stalin's whole
1: philosophy is we can do socialism in only one country. country. And that's when everything gets a lot more russified a lot more nationalistic never mind the fact that he's literally georgian but whatever exactly (laughs) that's when the bureaucracy really takes over and in in ways that honestly mayakovsky was you can see hints in his poetry of why how he's already suspicious of that but that's when it truly locks down he was
2: in utter despair well
1: yeah that's what happens when you're committing suicide you are in despair (laughs) i would imagine most of the time
0: that's what happens when you're any kind of artist or or writer Yeah. Especially Uh, if
2: you're a leftist artist. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of despair involved. (laughs) To be on the left is to be in a constant state of loss.
1: I'm going back to this photo again from 1924 because... Again, I want to look at all these faces and look at how different everybody looks from each other and think of Mm -hmm. the obviously multi-ethnic character of this sort of cutting edge of the literary arts. They've even brought in a Japanese writer here, Boris Pasternak, Mm -hmm. who is visibly very dark, Eisenstein with his, I guess what we'd call a Jufro today, and Lilia Brick, also ethnically Jewish. I don't know Olga Tretiakova, but that obviously sounds like a more standard Russian name. We've got Mayakovsky here towering over everybody, though, you know, Pastor Neck's also quite tall. Arseny Boznetsky and the translator on the right, who I believe is also uh, Japanese, if I'm, I I guess I couldn't necessarily tell you for sure, but I'm just guessing. Mm But it's just a really interesting picture to see how all these people look sort of so different from each other. And you do get the sense that this is a big moment. I've even heard Pasternak... I mean, this may not be fair, but I found it in one of the books I was going through that Pasternak was included as a futurist in some description of something. I don't know if I've ever heard anybody call Pasternak a futurist. That sounds like that might be a little bit of a stretch, but he definitely was running in these same circles with Mm -hmm. avant-gardists, and he was involved in left. Now that we've set this all up unnecessarily thoroughly, let's cast Backward to Listen and Great Big Hell of a City from 1913, 1914, before this had all happened, sort of expressing the hopes and also maybe some of the fears of early futurism. Do you want to maybe read one of those, Alex?
2: Let me do Great Big Hell of a City because I really do think there's a lot to say about it. And It's probably one of my favorites by him, at least of the short poems. Windows split the city's great hell into tiny helots, vamps with lamps. The cars, red devils, exploded their yells, right in your ear, rearing on their rumps. And there, under the signboard, with herrings from Kirch, an old man, knocked down, stooping to search for his specs, sobbed aloud when a tram with a lurch whipped out its eyeballs, in the twilight splurge, in the gaps between skyscrapers full of blazing ore, where the steel of trains came clattering by an aeroplane, fell with a final roar into the fluid oozing from the sun's eye. Only then, crumpling the blanket of lights, night loved itself out, lewd and drunk, and beyond the street suns, the sorriest of sights, sank the flabby moon, unwanted old junk.
1: Whose translation was that?
2: That was the PDF that you sent.
1: But that's a good one. That's one that preserves some of his rhymes, which is sometimes tricky to do.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's some real skill happening here in the translation. The idea of comparing cars to red devils and an aeroplane fell with the final roar into the fluid oozing from the sun's earth eye It's graphic. It's grotesque. It's this intensely, not just romantic, but straight up melancholy imagery. And this poor old man getting knocked down. If I'm reading this correctly, this tram coming down the street hits him so hard that it knocks his eyeballs out. I'm probably being over literal here, but that (laughs) imagery is so violent and so pathetic.
0: But is that what he wants, though? I don't
1: think so. I think it's a sort of a vision of horror. Yeah.
0: I mean, obviously we know where that leads, but then I also see, you know, kind of the beauty and also the horror. Mm -hmm. That's how I take it.
2: I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why it's interesting to juxtapose it with Listen, which he uses a lot of the same imagery. Well, not the same imagery, but he pulls on the sky, the uses of the sky and skylines, stars. But in Listen, and again, I don't want us to get too far ahead of ourselves, but in Listen, there's some hope to it, some grace. Yeah. So I think that he's yeah. seeing this as potentially very beautiful. But the way it's being used right now is actually quite cruel and inhuman.
1: There is an awareness of the beauty in the horrific. And that's what we might call the sublime. And I think that what separates him from, say, we might get in a romantic rendition of the same types of themes is that he's going to hyperbole in a way that is very characteristic of mayakovsky and characteristic of futurism in general that he's sort of casting forward he's leaning into it he's seeing an acceleration and the fact that this is written in 1913 so this the fact that this is a pre-war poem a pre-revolutionary poem, and pre-revolutionary by a long way. Obviously, you know, he's been a Bolshevik basically his whole life, and he's always... And at the very least, the back of his mind, sometimes, of course, very much the front of his mind, dreaming of revolution. But I see this as a poem written from a position that does not presume the revolution will actually happen in his lifetime. I see this as written from a position where he's imagining technological and social advances that go on and on and do not stop for the old man, do not stop for humanity, do not adapt themselves to humanity And it's just, you know, the skyscrapers and the furnaces that are smelting iron and whatnot.
0: Well, especially in the last two lines, you know, connecting to your point, at least in the version that I'm reading, it says, you know, beyond the street suns, the sorriest of sights. So, yeah, of course, Mm -hmm. it's cruel like you talk about. But what else are we doing in the last line? We're sinking the old flabby moon, the unwanted old junk as well. Yeah. my version so i'm
3: confused by the that's last stanza.
1: yeah
0: is it drunk
3: on the moon is like a night narcissistic and then it, like drink the moon
2: it could be i think it's an interesting reading actually
3: night oh. loved itself out lewd and drunk because i'm thinking a narcissist like just fucking stared at himself until he goddamn died the sari- Beyond the street suns, the sorriest of sights sank the flabby moon, unwanted old junk. Yeah. I'm confused.
1: I see the, okay, so this the street suns are the street lights. Yeah. And the moon is unnecessary because we have these lights now.
3: But it's drunk on itself. Night is drunk on itself and, like, the moon is the characterization.
1: hmm yeah Did
3: it, like drink its foot like foot like go down its gullet, and just like into a little unending circle of just nom nom nom
1: the mcgavrian translation goes and only then wadding up its blanket of street lamps night loved itself out lewd and drunken and behind the suns of streets somewhere there hobbled worthless to everyone a flabby moon the moon is not necessary anymore. We don't we don't need to look up to the moon when we have our romantic dreams of what might be. That we don't need the moon to light the night. We have these street lights.
3: Okay. Cause I've got the reverse's translation. It says, Only then crumpling the blanket of lights, night loved itself out, lewd and drunk, and be on the street suns the sorriest of sights. Thank the flabby moon, unwanted old
2: junk. Yeah. Yeah, that's a translation that I'm working off of too. But Frank's translation, you're looking at the McGavran. Frank is that? Yeah, and
1: McGavran is. I'm not really the one to judge this, obviously, but I've seen people say that MacGavran is not as literal as it could be. But then again, it's kind of hard to get a good translation of anything here.
2: Sure, sure. But I like useless to everyone or something like that. It says.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So the moon is being supplanted by the. That's the equivalent not, of yeah. unwanted
1: old junk over yeah, here. Yeah. Unwanted old junk. Yeah. yeah,
2: exactly. But I think when you make it pointed like that and say it's useless to everyone, yeah. I'm saying like the moon has become outdated yes
1: yes and that, so, that's the way yeah, that i read yeah.
0: it i'm still focusing on how night cast itself out though and especially if we frame it in writing. every
1: translation that i see in- writes night loved itself out which is really yeah. interesting yeah
0: that's why i'm focusing on it especially for the time period if we're talking about 1913 mm-hmm. you know that for me connects to a number of different things and then i keep coming back to it because for me it doesn't fit with the conclusion that we've come to
3: most of them are night loved itself out. It's obviously meant to be explicitly that. So like what's the true translation or whatever?
1: Oh, well, there never is one. You yeah. always got to balance a couple of things against each other.
3: Do you think somebody's think... learned Russian just to read
2: Mayakovsky in the original? Oh, language?
1: I'm sure. I'm sure somebody has.
2: Yeah. I think there is something to what you're saying though about narcissism.
1: The fact that every translation has that night loved itself itself out. out. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There's a sense of the outdated and the anachronistic can become really solipsistic and kind of self-obsessed. Like think of Gloria Swanson's character in Sunset Boulevard, just staring at herself, like pining for the... So it becomes this very (laughs) inward kind of... When something or someone, when their time is past, it maybe can be very easy for the narcissism to take over. And that's what makes you irrelevant. So if night is becoming, yeah, yeah. Now, what does that mean for some of the things about it becoming outdated? And, you know, like, I, I, yeah.
1: this is maybe not useful to add into it. But I also always think of the fact that in, well, at this point, it would still be St. Petersburg. You have certain times of year where there is no actual night right where you have daylight through night and day that may be less important because Mayakovsky's generally a little bit more of a moscow centered poet i mean obviously i mean we see it in about this that he's you know talking about petrograd as well Anna's writing a number of notes here that are very much this is textbook futurism mm-hmm. airplanes sexy wind The self as machine, the outside world as a machine, the perfection of the machine.
0: And, you know, the different classifications of machine, because the perfect machine can be inside yourself and then also outside with what you as a perfect machine can then engineer to solve the problems that can be addressed, like we talk about in our Deep Ecology presentation.
2: Which points back to what we were talking about earlier, that the differences in the way that, say, folks like us will approach technology, which should always be at the service of the great human collective, however we want to put that, the the people, the workers, the the oppressed, the exploited versus the fascist one, which is just only a few of us will be able to keep up with the great acceleration and those who get left behind well too bad for them.
1: Would you include the sort of techno-optimism of this sort of contemporary Silicon Valley mindset, would you include that as a form of oh yeah neo-fascism? Yeah.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, like most of them haven't gone quite that far, but the kernel is always there. Certain- yeah. Well, they, they've yeah.
1: tried to paint themselves as politically neutral, but I think that mm-hmm. would see, no, for instance, with them. IBM under the Third Reich, the corporate technologies are always ready to shake hands and work with fascism they end up being de facto fascists and then and we've seen that already yeah
2: yeah we've already seen with people like Peter Thiel
1: yeah we've seen that in Myanmar we've seen that even in the way that you know messaging works just in terms of you know Facebook algorithms we've seen YouTube doing a similar thing One of my favorite stories is how, like, I can't even remember who had designed the bot. It might have been Microsoft designed the friendly chat bot. And it took about five or 10 minutes for these Internet trolls to turn it into a Nazi. Yeah. And just someone who
2: thinks the 9-11 was an inside job. Yeah.
1: So, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So quite literally, the machines can also be fascists. It gets back to the notion of, and and everything will always come back to the dialectic of enlightenment, (laughs) because this distinction between the critical and instrumental rationality is one thing that we've never gotten over, uh, something that we've never figured out in the United States, no matter how much we should have. And it is sort of the problem of our era. And it was the same problem in this era, whether you're talking about in a capitalist context or a fascist context, or even in a communist context, ultimately, which is what Evgeny Zamyatin's novel, We, basically gets at. I mean, to put it simply for the kids out there, it's that meme of Jeff Goldblum in, in Jurassic Park saying that you guys- Just
2: because you could, you yeah,
1: you yeah, you, you, yeah, you guys yeah, spent yeah. so much energy thinking about whether you could you never bothered to think about whether yeah, you should, should. yeah Jeff Goldblum yeah, is a gem
3: yeah oh,
2: so I that's love Jeff Goldblum.
1: Yeah. teaching us the lesson that we need to learn and have not yet learned about critical versus instrumental rationality
2: the thing that makes it so dangerous today and again i don't want us to get too far off topic but it's relevant <laughs> because we've gotten to this point where social media there's a very trite way to talk about social media that's very moralistic and really doesn't really get the crux of it But there's an excellent book that was released in the US just this past year by Richard Seymour called The Twittering Machine. And he talks about what is it about the way social media operates that makes it so easy to red pill people, for example, and turn hapless little internet surfers into full bone queue. And, you know, Seymour is a Marxist and he makes the case. And very convincingly, I'd say that the point he puts forth is that social media has allowed all of us to write more than the human race collectively has ever written. But the thing about social media yeah. also is that the way that it shapes our desires, the way that it plays into, creates, and immediately satisfies and neutralizes our desires, means that we are actually being written more than writing. So it's sort
1: of combining a culture industry concept with the question of, well, what happens when you talk back to the culture industry
2: Mm -hmm. and you sort of
1: get these weird political feedback loops, I guess.
2: Yeah. We've already talked about the way in which algorithms start to skew to the right, to the hard right, like we've been over the past few years. Then the question becomes, how does the left respond?
1: Well, um, the left has you know. been trying to figure out a way to respond, and I think the podcasts are obviously a big part of that. Of course, I, I mean, I know that Means tv is trying to do its thing.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of them in LA. Too, yeah, so, yeah.
1: Part of it is just a problem with funding, which has always been an issue. Mm-hmm. Of course. Mm-hmm. Let's read, listen, and go from there. Do you want to read this one again, or do you want somebody else to read it?
2: Ooh, someone else can read it. Rachel?
3: Listen. If stars are lit, it means there is someone who needs it. it means someone wants to be. That someone deems the specks of spit magnificent. And overwrought in the swirls of afternoon dust, he bursts in on God, afraid he might be already late. In tears, he kisses God's sinewy hand and begs him to guarantee that there will definitely be a star. He swears he won't be able to stand that starless ordeal.
0: Later, he wanders around worried but outwardly calm. (laughs) And And to to
3: everyone else, he says, no, it's all right. You are no longer afraid, are you?
0: Listen, Listen, if if stars stars
3: are lit, it means there is someone who needs it. It means it it is essential that every evening." Every evening, at least one star should ascend over the crest of the building.
1: That was beautiful.
3: (laughs) Would have been better without Anna, just saying.
0: No.
1: (laughs) I find this an odd poem. I was surprised that you chose it, Alex, because it does seem like Mayakovsky at his most romantic and sentimental. Yeah, Yeah, romantic in like a bad way. But what do you get out of it?
2: The reason I like it so much is because I do think it's an interesting kind of juxtaposition With Great Big Hell of a City. As I said before, I think one gets the sense of it's almost childlike. Matter of fact, it's very childlike. And it's this idea of just looking up at night. You're probably drunk. I've been having more of these nights also now that things are sort of opening up more in LA. And, you know, my partner and I are slowly but surely starting to go out into the, and then, you know, that moment when you're just sort of looking up drunk at the stars is very Oscar Wilde, I think, in many ways. It's kind of just saying, uh, finding a very sweet and innocent way to hold on to some sort of hope. And as we've also seen, this was the same year as uh, Great Big Hell of a City. So the idea of Mayakovsky looks at the stars, unlike the night collapsing on the human being in Great Big Hell of a City, this is a human being actually giving the night some sense of life through their hope. The night doesn't exist without people looking at it and saying, where do I fit
1: into it? See, I think that that's actually where we're gonna have problems. I feel like for us, that's gonna be like really hard. Well, certainly for me, that's gonna be really hard for me to take seriously because this is like- <laughs> Which is fair. It's just a really extreme anthropocentric view It's just hard for me not to cringe at it. I mean, I like, well, I don't know if I like it, but I understand the appeal of the idea that it's like, ah yes, the stars are there for us. There is a sort of roots radical sentiment to that, like the whole world is ours. All we Mm -hmm. need to do is take it and learn to share it. And it's translating that to the aesthetic register. And I think you're right, the sort of notes of Oscar Wilde are probably intentional as we see that in about this too, that obviously Mayakovsky was influenced by Wilde. I think it's just hard for me as an eco to take this seriously because it is very much going out of its way not to let the stars be stars, going out of its way not to let the world be the world and it's all just a question of like well what are we going to do with the world the bit about god is kind of weird and i think that I (laughs) i think i have to understand it you know in the context of the other stuff that he's writing around this time like the cloud in pants where he's like i imagine doing something that in his era would be considered to be blasphemous but it just doesn't really look like that to us
2: sure
1: i don't know anna go on
0: okay resident pessimist here but like for me i also understand what was trying to be achieved here but for me it doesn't work it's like blade without the blood rave at the beginning (laughs) Uh, i don't know especially nobody has ever
1: compared this poem to the
2: movie blade
0: you know what i'll (laughs) be the first and i'm happy to do it
2: I'm totally here for the blade references, to be honest. Exactly. <laughs> yes. well,
0: well, someone forced me to watch it, so now unfortunately I have to. Think about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, besides that, though, I go through and I read this poem, and for me, it's the opposite of what he sets out to do here, you know, because especially when you get to the part about God, why does he have to burst in on God, and why should I ever have to think about God's sinewy hand? Never. Ugh. You don't and like I- a veiny boy?
2: gods of any boy i'm
0: not gonna answer that
2: question (laughs) there is
1: this Uh, element of mayakovsky that we see this in the pre-war poems in his sort of attitude towards divinity and then after the revolution it kind of transmutes into his attitude towards the party where like the sort of communist bureaucratic apparatus ends up almost replacing god and then he imagines himself you know, like at the end of Proeto, where he's supplicating from beyond the grave to some weird chemical engineer like please please resurrect me or where he's talking to the tax man about trying to justify like well this is what i do and this is why it's worthy of you know service to the communist government or ultimately in at the top of my voice where he's basically trying to justify his whole life to this imagined revolutionary committee of the future, it comes back again and again in his poetry that he's imagining having to justify himself to this abstract authority figure outside of space and time. It starts out being God and eventually it's the party. And it's unclear what his attitude is. It's unclear. I think that sometimes it's an obviously blasphemous, nihilistic attitude. And at other times it's much more like, look, i did a good job dad it's really weird i don't know anna i cut you off but continue please
0: you really did no i was gonna say maybe this connects to the god part or you know your tangent on nihilism or not but you know when i get to the third stanza you know the last lines and it says you are no longer afraid are you to me that just sounds like okay every bs sunday school lesson that i've ever had in my life
1: Who do you think he's speaking to when he's asking about whether you're afraid?
0: I honestly think he's speaking to multiple people. I think he's speaking to maybe God himself, maybe the larger community, and then also himself, if he's being reflective in this poem. And I kind of see that, how he could be reflective, possibly.
1: I think our most generous reading of this, at least probably from the place where you or I might read this, is that he's imagining the natural world of... You know, the stars in the sky replacing God. He's mm. saying like to your average Russian whose worldview is wholly anchored on the notions of the czar, the Orthodox Church your archetypal orthodox christian czarist russian who just sort of is presuming the authority of all these things in the pre-war period he's saying that actually we can replace all these things with the stars themselves surely if the stars are lit there's somebody who longs for them somebody who wants to shine a bit somebody who calls it that we speck of spittle a gem it's like sort of like oh we are stars too
0: (laughs) Stars they're lit bro yes
1: (laughs) There's like a Saganism in there maybe too, you know, like. Yeah, 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 I think so. I I don't know. Anna's not going to buy any of this shit.
0: No, I'm not going to buy any of that (laughs) shit. And also it reminds me of the same problem you get into when you talk about politics or technology to solve all of your problems, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of as a replacement in that way too. It just doesn't, I don't know. Your point is that you
1: need to just destroy the thing. You can't look to replace it with something else. The replacement is a problem.
0: Right, exactly. You're replacing your problem with another problem, and it yeah. will be a problem. You just don't recognize that right now. Have y'all seen Westworld?
1: We're not going down that rabbit hole, Rachel.
0: <laughs>
2: okay.
0: <laughs> Didn't you tell me it's about where those robots fuck and stuff? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, the robots fuck. Yeah, yeah. all right. Dolores. <laughs> we're, we're centering this... Anna, your critique. I think it's a good critique because it's a critique that we can carry over to the whole communist revolution if we want to. The notion of destroying the thing and merely replacing it with some version of the same thing. And it gets back to our favorite dumbass reads of history, which is imagine, you know, your typical illiterate peasant in this period from between 1913 to 1923. you got this 10 year span here and you go from the Orthodox Church and the czarist regime and, you know, everything with tradition as it always was to a complete overthrow of the government, its replacement with communism. The complete de-centering of the church, if not its abolition. I mean, the abolition of the church is never complete, of course, but you get that. And that, you know, knuckle-dragging peasant that we're hypothesizing here, and this is not meant to insult anyone, but it's just to say that the stupid view of history is sometimes true, as we learned, I think, quite well from 1900. That person is just basically replacing a notion of the old regime with the new regime. Like, okay, now it's communism and this is what we do and we go along. And this exactly is why we get Vladimir Lenin's body preserved Yeah, yeah, as like a a waxed (laughs) mummy for everybody to come pray to because you're just replacing the thing with another thing. You haven't actually changed all that much. I mean, maybe you've changed the details of the way the economy works, but you haven't solved the sort of philosophical problem, the metaphysical problem. Is that Mm -hmm. what you're getting at, Anna? Anna says, yes, Joe Biden.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I see it with Biden too. It's just kind of freezing of history or an attempt to freeze history so that we can better control it. It's just reification over and over again. Let's give
1: Anna a chance to rip on Biden.
0: He's crusty. That's all I have to say. He's like the scab you keep picking at and just won't go away.
2: Uh, Oh God, (laughs) you know what? Yeah.
1: There's a term that the leftists are using now. I don't know if they're using it in your circles, Alex, but blue MAGA, um, which is like absolutely uh, a thing that's the idea yeah. that the blue no matter who voter of the last election uh, maybe not every single one of them but some of them are now verging towards a political outlook that is very much blue maga which is to say that like look joe biden's making america great again and yeah, it's still wrapped up wrong. in the same type of nostalgia in some ways some of the policies are the same as trump's and mm-hmm. the the problems have not really been fixed
2: I've seen people on Twitter saying that if Fred Hampton were alive today, he'd be part of the k hive.
1: I do not understand why they would say that.
2: There is no internal logic to it. Just, <laughs> because it's, because it's, people it's just, are dumb. That's your... <laughs> this is the way that people who vote blue no matter what, this is their approach to history. In some way, I think it's very much in line with Dana's critique of this poem. People who think that you can just bend all of history in the universe around this specific person's political agenda. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. All that matters is how loudly you say it.
4: Well, yeah. Which, I'm... which
2: is something that Trump perfected. And now the sort of K folks and, you know, the blue MAGA folks are just sort of taking the same, yeah.
0: Well, you know, it reminds me of this documentary that I watched the other day about, I forget what it was about. It was about the connection between the food industry and the advertising industry. And their whole point was that, okay, actually, you know, we don't want informed consumers. We actually want uninformed consumers, which will make irrational decisions. I mean, that to me connects with our point on Blue Mega as well, because I don't know, to me, what are we creating here? And to me, it kind of relates to the connection between, you know, their whole slogan is that like, how much do you really know and then we end up with this I don't even have words for him anymore but you get my point
2: yeah yeah
1: Thing that I can't understand here is that there's a difference between voting for someone and thinking that someone's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. I mean, for fuck's Mm -hmm. sake, like I voted for Biden because I felt like it was, you know, a necessary strategic vote. As in every other election that I've participated in, I've always felt like it was a choice between two bad things. And I've heard many, many times that this is not the way to go. And I'd love to be engaged in a more revolutionary politics, but that's not what I feel like I'm doing when I'm filling out the ballot. I'm filling out the ballot, I'm just basically trying to be like, well, okay, what's our least bad solution here? Mm-hmm. But what I don't get is how then that translates into this sort of rah-rah, attitude. Biden was nobody's favorite candidate early on. I don't
3: know. It- we like Bernie, bro.
1: Again, I certainly don't think that Bernie Sanders is the kind of person that I want to follow into, I guess, fucking battle or whatever. I mean, the man's not a god, but he was literally for five years straight, he was hands down the most popular politician in the country, despite the fact that everybody was yelling about how he was an unrealistic socialist. And now I'm just ranting pointlessly. The point is, none of these are Vladimir Ilyich Lenin none of these men are worthy of a 10 or 50 page poem you know
2: <laughs> one of the things that i think is relevant to this like uh, getting back to mayakovsky is that one of the movements that he was sometimes allied with and sometimes had some very fierce playful barbs against was the prolet cult movement i can't remember if we just mentioned them or if we discussed them
1: you talked about it a little yeah. bit last time i think you, yeah, you clearly I mean- know more about it than we do
2: This was a movement that was allied with the Bolshevik party after the revolution that was aiming to basically tackle the question of how you have this artistic and literary flourishing that is worthy of a communist revolution in a country where most of the folks are peasants and can't read. And they just started from the rudiments. They said, look, first of all, we make sure we have teachers and books in every single village, things like that. And did they succeed? No. But they had a very sincere belief in that you give people the tools to create and unleash their creativity and great things can happen.
1: And as with every communist revolution that's come along, literacy was massively foremost. boosted.
2: Yes. This is why I think it's, and I guess to some of the things we'll talk about in Order of the Arts number two, where he's addressing all of these different movements, the imaginist, the acneist, the futurist, prolet you know, where he's just saying, you know, this is our task. We are the ones to educate and be in dialogue with, you know, working people across this whole country.
4: If you're interested in learning more about the prolet cult, we highly recommend listening to the podcast Guerrilla History, specifically their most recent episode on Alexander Bogdanov's art and the working class, which was recently translated into English by Taylor Genovese. Bogdanov was the main force behind Prolet cult and the so-called second Bolshevik after Lenin. Though ultimately, they tussled over their ideas about art and culture. So if you're interested in checking that out, it'll be linked in our description.
2: At the time when Mayakovsky was writing some of the things like Order of the Arts, the person in charge of the Ministry of Culture was a dude named Anatoly Lunacharsky. Lunacharsky had a lot of just fascinating theories and approaches, one of which was just, if you're going to talk about an artistic revolution, the first thing you need is to educate (sighs) fucking everyone. The second thing you need is to instill in people an idea that collectively we can replace God. He had a theory of God building. This is actually not unlike what happens in the French Revolution, where... Robespierre founds the Temple of the Supreme Being. And then they
1: decide that they're going to make a new calendar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did get the metric system out of it, though.
2: Very true, very true. But I think Mayakovsky's, was he a full adherent of God building? Not really, but he did believe that a fully educated and fully realized collective population, he believed thoroughly that that would be a population that can touch the stars, so to speak. So is it solipsistic? Is it very overly sentimental? Yes, but I see it as a really great kind of counterbalance to some of the dismalness of Great Big City. That's one of the reasons I wanted to read the two of them in conjunction. Yeah,
1: Lunacharsky, interestingly, really did like pro-Eto,
2: which I'm
1: always amazed when I hear that any actual political person in the Soviet government was like, Oh, yeah, I really like this Mayakovsky poem because it's really hard for me to wrap my head around the idea that never mind an ordinary person, but a political apparatchik is going to be like, yes, this is my gym." But he loved that poem. And that was a poem that, and eventually we'll get to it, I'm sure, (laughs) when it was published, everybody was like, what in the fuck is this? And honestly, I read it and I say, what in the fuck is this? Hi, it's Frank Impost. Post. I wanted to drop in a brief historical note here. Whenever we're talking about the revolution in these episodes and we start to get vague or don't know what we're talking about, I would, of course, recommend listening to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, Season 10, as well as certain segments of the uh, History of the 20th Century podcast that Mark Painter does. In particular, here, I need to note the meaning of a title like Order Number One to the Army of the Arts. Here, Mayakovsky is riffing on the Petrograd Soviets' Order Number One, which happened immediately in the wake of the February Revolution, uh, which we might call the liberal revolution that overthrows the czarist regime and the Duma as they exist, and that leads to what ends up calling itself the provisional government taking control. But when that happens, we actually get a system of dual power, which is pretty significant to how things will shake out later in the October Revolution, which is the Communist Revolution. That is to say that not only do you have the supposedly legitimate provisional government or what we might call the liberal government, you have the Petrograd Soviet of workers and soldiers, deputies, and then also various Soviets popping up in towns and workplaces all over the country. And so there's no clear claim for any of these institutions, if you want to even call them institutions, to claim legitimacy in any real way in a sense what order number one does is it recognizes the significance of the russian army as a collective proletarian organization to the revolution and one might say that is to the detriment of it functioning as an actual army itself arguably it won't function as an army ever again which is why the Red Army needs to be built for the Civil War. Without getting too much into the details, and again, you know where to find those, what happened in the February Revolution was an uprising over bread prices among the women of Petrograd had not been put down. Which is to say, quite simply, that the Green recruits, when they were ordered to fire on the mob, refused to do so and indeed pledged that they would support the revolution and would back the people in the streets. And with apologies to the oversimplification here, the order number one of the Petrograd Soviet then really officially puts the Russian army under the auspices of the Soviet by saying that the military units should elect their own deputies to the Soviet Council and that they should obey all orders from the Provisional Government, or the Provisional Committee as it was calling itself at the moment, unless those orders contradicted the orders of the Petrograd Soviet. So you see here revolutionary power of the workers, Uh, in the collective context of the military, independent of the authority of their officers, conscripted into the revolution under the banner of the Soviet with the rather pointed suggestion that if the provisional government runs afoul of the Soviet decisions, then the military will be on the Soviet side. So this then codifies the system of dual power as much as it can be codified. And this leaves for the Bolsheviks, as they ultimately end up successfully doing, to delegitimize, usurp, lockout, supplant, etc. the provisional government, and then dominate the Soviets, which is, again, a very, very oversimplified way of explaining what happens in October and then in the years that follow. So as Mayakovsky writes his order number one to the Army of the Arts, he's attempting to do an analogous thing to say, artists, you are now conscripted into the revolution. You are now a part of this thing. You aren't under czarist control anymore. And if you're under the control of the provisional government, it's only at the pleasure of the Soviet, which is to say you work for the people now. Let's do an Order to the Army of Arts. The first one is from 1918. And the second one is from 1921. So I'll read the first one, Order to the Army of Art from 1918. And this is the McGavran translation. Brigades of old fogies are still busy spinning their same old long spun out thread. Comrades to the barricades, the barricades of hearts and souls. The only true communist is he who's burnt every bridge leading back. Enough of this marching. Futurists, it's time for a leap into the future. It's not enough to build a steam engine. You twist on some wheels and you're gone. If a song doesn't thunder through the station, then what's the use of alternating current? Pile sound upon sound and move forward, singing and whistling. There are still some good letters left. R, sha, shaha. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to build things in pairs, to fluff up the edges of your trouser legs. All the Sovdeps depths in the world can't move armies if musicians don't provide a march. Drag grand pianos out into the street and hang a drum out the window. Whether it's a drum or a piano, just make sure there's a din. Make sure there's thunder. What's all that about? Sweating in factories, smearing your face with soot, and then in your time off, staring blankly with dreamy eyes at other people's luxury? Enough of halfpenny truths. Wipe everything old from your heart. Streets are our brushes. Squares are palettes. The days of the revolution have yet to be sung by the thousand-paged book of time. To the streets, all you futurist drummers and poets.
2: Yes. This is the Hayward Reedy translation. Okay, so order number two to the army of the arts. This is for you, the fleshy baritones who, since the days of Adam, have shaken those dens called theaters with the arias of Romeos and Juliets. This is for you, the peintre, grown as robust as heroes, the ravening and neighing beauty of Russia, skulking in ateliers, and as of old, imposing draconian laws on flowers and bulking bodies. This is for you, who put on little fig leaves of mysticism, whose brows are harrowed with wrinkles, you little futurists, imaginists, acneists, entangled in the cobweb of rhymes. This is for you, who have exchanged rumpled hair for a slick hairdo, vast shoes for lacquered pumps, you, men of the prolet cult, who, Keep patching Pushkin's faded tailcoat. This is for you who dance and pipe on pipes. Sell yourselves openly, sin in secret, and picture your future as academicians with outsized rations. I admonish you. I, genius or not, who have forsaken trifles and work in Rasta, I admonish you before they disperse you with rifle butts. Give it up. Give it up. Forget it spit on rhymes and arias and the rose bush and other such mawkishness from the arsenal of the arts. Who's interested now in, ah, wretched soul, how he loved, how he (laughs) suffered? Good workers, these are the men we need rather than long-haired preachers. Listen, the locomotives groan and a draft blows through crannies and floor. Give us coal from the don, metal workers, the mechanics for the depot, At each river's outlet, steamers with an aching hole in their side, howl through the docks. Give us oil from Baku while we dawdle and quarrel in search of fundamental answers. All things yell, give us new forms. There are no fools today to crowd, open mouthed round a maestro and await his pronouncement. Comrades, give us a new form of art, an art that will pull the Republic out of the mud. First of all, it's interesting that there is towards the end, maybe just after halfway through, right after he says, give it up. There's also listen again, listen, yeah, exclamation point. And in some ways he's kind of answering the question, how do we build the stars? Whether he's conscious of it or not, I have no idea, but I think think so.
1: We see this in a lot of his work and a lot of callbacks. Definitely in Proeto as well, where he will reference a past poem that he wrote.
2: And I think he's saying that the art we need right now is the literal rebuilding of society. At this point, it's 21. You know, you have 14 armies invading the new sort of Soviet Republic. The revolutionary (laughs) project elsewhere is not going well.
1: Is twenty one uh, just the yeah. end of the Civil War? Does it end in twenty one or twenty two?
2: Towards the end of twenty one, if I'm remembering correctly, yeah. I could be, but don't. So it's around that the that
1: time can... that it's winding down. Yeah.
2: Yes, yeah, but then you've also had terrible things that kind of portend the the bureaucratization of the revolution. So during the Civil War, the cities are just emptying out because there's not enough food to feed all workers. People are retreating to the countryside and becoming peasants again, because that's where many of them think it's going to be easier to find food. The Straits are pretty damn dire for the revolution by this point. And so that's where you start to get things like Lenin and Trotsky starting to make some very bureaucratic decisions that strip a lot of decision-making power away from the Soviets, away from the workers' councils. Things are really, really dire by this point. And for folks like Mayakovsky, I kind of feel like he's saying that we are going to help this revolution survive on sheer willpower and sacrifice as much as possible. I mean, he's literally calling for artists to find their art in factories, which is interesting the way it juxtaposes with the first poem, where he's literally calling for an army of the arts, an army of artists to be the soundtrack of the revolution, so to speak. He's saying that art is central to life and therefore we can't have a revolution without art. And the, the poets and the painters, the sacrifices they're making there in 1918, produce as much work as possible inspire as many souls as possible as opposed to 1921 and you're saying like go learn how to make a gear
1: i find it particularly interesting that he has this line this self-burn built in there
3: he really hated himself didn't he
1: i mean i think so at least in this moment who's interested now in our ah, wretched soul how he loved how he suffered and like two years yeah, later God. he's going yeah. back to Ah wretched soul how he loved how he
2: suffered <laughs> It's true. It's all true. Anna,
1: Rachel, what do you get from it?
0: My thoughts on this poem, and I guess this kind of connects to what you're talking about. You might have to do that work for me. But I think when I go through and I read this poem, I'm with the Velodia version, so it's probably different than yours. But basically, he goes through and he talks and he says, you know, this is for you who dance and pipe on pipes, sell yourselves openly, sin in secret. Then he talks about these people picturing their grand future and also, for some reason, his work in Rasta. And then basically he says, and what interests me most, and I don't know where to take this, but he basically says, give it up. You know, give it up because how is that going to really service such and such efforts if art is at the beginning and then these skills are needed to propel whatever forth this future? I don't know. I'm still analyzing it. But I think it's really interesting where he says, give it up, forget it, spit on rhymes and arias and the rosebush and other such mawkishness from the arsenal of the arts. So obviously rejection of previous art forms there yeah i don't know there's a lot of ways that you could take that but i definitely found that to be the most interesting part of
1: this well i think it's his self-justification this is his moment where he's as you said he's explaining why he's working i genius or not who have forsaken trifles and work in rasta i admonish you before they disperse you with rifle butts give it up my god Then people like Lily Brick and other writers that he'd, you know, worked alongside were basically talking trash on him and saying that he had let his talents go to waste doing propaganda for the government. And he's basically saying, well, you might call me a genius or maybe I'm not a genius, whatever. We're going to fucking club you to death if you don't get on board because there's more important shit than making some rhymes. He
0: literally says spit on rhymes and aria's. the arsenal of the arts. So then that gets into the conversation about kind of like his Rasta work and also, you know, the work of what he talks about earlier in the poem, the different groups like the futurists, the imaginists and such, you know, who gets to decide what is right for the moment and, you know, who gets to decide what will stand the test of time and stick within I don't know. There's an ending to that sentence, but you get what I'm saying, right? Well,
1: that yeah. Was- who gets to decide <laughs> that is apparently it's the fucking military. I mean, it's kind of dark. I mean, if you look at this head on, he starts a couple years earlier, he's saying like, okay, well we are an army of the arts. We are part of this army. And now it's a few years later. Well, the army might be turning on you. I mean, this is a mm-hmm. revolution. Mm-hmm. He sees this honest to God as a fucking revolution. And that line, I admonish you before they disperse you with rifle butts. I mean, the only thing that could make it more aggressive is if he re- before we disperse you with rifle butts. And I don't know if there's a version of the translation that does that because if there would be, I mean, that's even more pointed.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is.
2: Yeah. 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 He's trying very hard to wish the revolution is something other than what it's becoming.
1: But there is these moments where he looks it straight in the eye and he says, you know, maybe sometimes people got to go down. I mean, in every revolution, you have this question, like you said, Robespierre, who originally is this great opponent of the death penalty, right? Mm -hmm. In the French Revolution, eventually comes around to... Well, yeah, we got to kill the king. And then once once he gets past that point, it's like, yeah, actually, there's a lot of other motherfuckers that got to die, too. And there's plenty of people on that list of people whose heads got chopped off that no one's crying a tear for. But then eventually it comes around to you, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's Robespierre right there. And similarly, you know, Mayakovsky had friends who eventually they came after. And, uh, you know, it's not a bad guess that eventually they might have come after Mayakovsky, too, if he hadn't offed mm-hmm. himself. It's a dark moment there where he says, before they disperse you with rifle butts.
0: Who's interested now in our wretched soul? How he loved, how he suffered, if they're deciding for us. Yeah. Who's interested? No, because either way, whether you're trying or not, like you said, it's dark. They're being decided for. So, yeah.
1: But that's also yeah. why it's so fucking bonkers that two years later this weird ass oh wretched soul how he loved how he suffered poem lunacharsky is like this is my jam and he's supposed to be the one who's cracking the whip and being like no this is bad propaganda it's a much more complex political culture than i think we normally appreciate though obviously gets simplified by the time we get to full stalinism
2: well the interesting thing here also is lankovsky isn't actually going to work in factories himself
1: (laughs) Well, he's going and reading his poems in factories, which I'm sure leads to a lot of confusion.
2: I could see very easily people being jaded by that and thinking it's stupid or getting something from it. I think it goes both uh,
1: ways. And I think that he was clearly a performer, you know, and that both (laughs) means that he constantly demanded adulation. And Mm -hmm. also it means that he, I think pretty obviously also had this masochistic enjoyment of the moments where he fell on his face. Like he wanted to (laughs) fall on his face publicly when he fell on his face. Yeah, And this is just one of those things that makes him such a modern figure, such a figure that really translates well to our times. Like he just always wanted to be in this shit. He was a fucking attention whore he really was
0: if anything that top hat proves your point
1: like, yeah maybe? even when he goes to this you know much harsher look in this era you know where he starts shaving his head and all that that's part of it too he is re-envisioning himself as the avant-garde provocateur and this is something that Rudchenko did too so you see you know these pictures of Rodchenko with the shaved head you know in this period it's a very revolutionary look Sometimes it's the shaved head. Sometimes it's the yellow shirt. But later on in Mayakovsky's life, toward the end of it, he's always dressing snappy, right? This is the last time he appears in public in 1930. And you can see how the revolution has sort of become more domesticated. He looks like, I mean, shit, I dress like this some days, you know?
2: Yeah, he looks <laughs> like an Oxford professor here. Yeah, probably.
1: yeah. He so, looks
3: like Alan Turing
4: right there.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. The sweater, though, you can see that Mayakovsky flair in the like, I'm going to pick a really loud sweater, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of that, too. But, you know, he adapts himself to the time and he, he wants to look like what a hip poet of the time looks like.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So in these poems, I really see a continuation of the futurist purpose to say like, now here's our chance, we're going to reshape the world. But in it, we also see this conflict that's within Mayakovsky himself. And we see this in Proeto, the conflict between the true revolutionary and the bureaucrat that he mm-hmm. he sees something of the bureaucrat in himself, whether that's a question of the way that and I'm not sure he even knows, is the bureaucrat the person who's making pretty poetry for no good reason? Is the bureaucrat just the person who's paying his taxes? Is the bureaucrat mm-hmm. the person who's saying yes, yes, you know, we must follow the revolution no matter what and disperse them with rifle butts. I'm not sure if that's quite answered fully, but it gets at the angst that's within these poems like Pro Eto, and then the internal conflict that he's trying to resolve in something like My Soviet Passport or the conversation with the tax collector.
2: Yeah, I think he's trying to solve the problems of everyday life in his poetry for himself, yes. even though he is fully aware of his inability to do so. But his inability to do so does not stop him from asking the questions of himself. Yeah. So he chooses this very futile, impossibilist task for himself, which is, you know, in sticking with what the romantic modernist poet does, it's their job to ask what point is the poet at? and in so doing have to sort of act out their own futility, constant back and forth. Uh-huh.
1: And this is really throughout his whole career, and we ought to probably mention it at some point here. The Russian term for everyday life is B'YT, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, B-Y-T. And it shows up at a number of times in his poems, and it sort Mm -hmm. of is a whole kind of theme that orients the struggles. And it even comes back in The Suicide Note, which was often published as Past One O'Clock, Well, I'm not really going to be able to read Cyrillic, but I do believe that he actually does use that word in the line, Love's boat has smashed against the daily grind, or any number of other ways that it's translated. In the era of the revolution, you had this conflict between what is the everyday life of the past and what will the everyday life of the future be. And so he's trying to sort of define that thing. And also because he's a futurist and also because he's avant garde and also because he's a messy bitch. He's constantly rebelling against the mundane. He's constantly rebelling against the everyday. And that's where all his angst is coming from,
2: really. Right around the time of the publication of Pro Eto is when Trotsky publishes Problems of Everyday Life, 1923, same year. But yeah, it included the word, the B-Y-T, and yeah, that was their sort of obsession. And I think Tomayakovsky, along with Luna Charsky. And a lot of the folks, you saw this in the cult people, you saw it in the rest of the Futurists, but in a different way was that idea of the problems of everyday life to be solved through full electrification mixed with workplace democracy. The Lenin quip that socialism is Soviet power plus electrification.
1: I love how dumb
2: that one is.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, it is very... It's peace, land, and bread. It's on the same level. And I yeah. think you're going to read a Rosie Carrick's note on this, which is pretty good.
0: Yeah, so basically it's pronounced from what I can say wheat.
1: That's what I thought, but I'm terrible at this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it's pronounced wheat and then of course, you know, she goes in and talks about how it does stand for routine, you know, but it is more complex than that. There is old wheat and new if i'm saying that correctly Mm
2: -hmm. and basically you know
0: routine for mayakovsky and karak's eyes is you know defined as everything he hates about the system Mm -hmm. about the old wheat and the routine represents everything he hates and then about the system in which he's living in or the system that was accepted in the west or otherwise and then new wheat is obviously the system inaugurated by Lenin involved things like the emancipation of women, Mm -hmm. obviously his views into communism as well, you know, a a communist way of life, and blah, 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 cleanliness, exercise, and healthy habits, Mm -hmm. functional sparse living quarters, and the implementation of Goelro, if I'm saying that right. But basically, there's this classification between the old way and the new way.
1: Do you think that Mayakovsky would really even fit in particularly well into the new way?
0: In some ways, no. And especially when we consider, or at least my critique of, uh, I already forgot the title of the star one. But I don't think in his writing, and especially in this one, I don't think he either critiques old wheat hard enough or he doesn't campaign for new as effectively as he thinks Mm. he's doing
1: either. Maybe now we'll loop around and talk about Pro Eto. Because he did claim that Pro Eto, which, again, might be translated as about this or about that, or that's what. He claimed that this poem is describing what life is like today, what our life is like, what life is like in the new Soviet Union telephone explodes you (laughs) but that's kind of exactly how logical what he's doing is sort of like how he claims that the cloud in pants is this four-part fuck you fuck your god fuck your czar you know whatever but it's not really all that well organized similarly this is not really about what life is like
0: I'm saying it's basically you know the same question as when you're watching a movie in quarantine and your mom's like oh yeah it's five hours like what the fuck are you doing you know (laughs) tighten it up a little bit here
2: I think that Mayakovsky has this almost pathological need to rail against all forms of regimentation and routine again while fully realizing that it's impractical for a socialist revolution to concern itself with this. I've pulled up a dissertation here by Christine Schick at UC Berkeley. title is just a Russian constructivist theory and practice in the visual and verbal forms of pro Eto. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't know why I didn't think to send this to y'all before, but I'll put it in the chat now. And it's got this whole section where there's a juxtaposition And this gets to some of the stuff that Anna was talking about also, the conflict between the new wheat that's being built supposedly at the time, which is hyper-efficient, minimalist, and all that type of stuff, and just very rational, but also humane. Like everyone, ideally at least, or in theory, would get everything they need to live. But Mayakovsky is also like, yes, but it should also be fun. Or saying, no, it should also be telephones exploding because somehow that's going to be fun. All right, so on page 17... Trotsky's pragmatic reasoned approach to new wheat helps bring Mayakovsky's into sharper focus. It reminds us that socialism was, after all, a social program, an economic movement that promised precisely to improve, eventually, the material circumstances of life for the masses. By contrast, Mayakovsky's program is one of abstention, of the renunciation of the comforts of material life. When he upgrades his family with exchanging love for the darning of socks, he implies that the joys of the spirit are incompatible with the physical needs of the body. The poet's mindset in this sense is closer to that of medieval orthodoxy, with its emphasis on the renunciation and transcendence of the physical realm, that of enlightenment and rationalism. What he longs for is not the betterment of the material realm or the equality of those in it, so much as to renounce the physical material realm altogether, and so to transcend. So is she saying that he's
1: not even really a materialist?
2: I think insofar as she is, she's wrong, I think.
1: (laughs) And how dare she?
2: (laughs) Or I would disagree with it. But I think that there's this sort of gap here that she's pointing at, the Mayakovsky is pointing at also in all of his work, which is really impossibly trying to bridge the material with the immaterial. There's this suggestion that if we actually get to the point where we have fulfilled everyone's material needs through like a program of radical everyday democracy, if we are democratizing every single bit of daily life, then we actually maybe do get to the part where we transcend. It gets back to Lunacharsky's God building too. This is one of the things that he's arguing also. It's oh. not so much the replacement of God is just the transcendence of the need for a God through that kind of radical democratic replacement. Now, is it possible I
1: don't know. Let's see if we can talk a little bit about Pro-Eto. And I mean, it is in three parts, but maybe I could say that there's basically a series of four things that happen that he's trying to call Lily Brick on the phone so we have this bit where he's trying to communicate across the mechanical systems of the new city. Mm-hmm. This is where maybe we do see a little bit of the everyday life of the new Buit here. And then, of course, she's more or less rejecting him. It's similar to a lot of his poems in this sense. Then we get him standing out on the bridge... Or is it a real bridge? Is it a metaphorical bridge? I don't know. He's a polar bear. He describes himself as a polar bear, crying. He has a vision of himself from seven years ago where he's writing this other poem. We get a number of callbacks to these other poems that he's written ultimately we get this vision that sort of spans across space in like this really radical way. Like I mentioned earlier, it's sort of encompassing all of the Soviet union, but then he's also reaching back to his memories of his time in Paris. He's thinking about Montmartre. And then we have these Sort of really violent images of people dying in the Civil War, of revolutionaries gunned down. And he's sort of blending this vision of the war with a vision of himself dying. In a certain sense, a much more visceral version of what we got in that order number two, where he's saying, well, if you're useless, then the revolution going to come for you too, even if you are just an artist. Then the coda is where he's imagining whether he and Lily are going to be able to be reincarnated. And he's literally begging from beyond the grave to the future chemical technician to please, please resurrect him. It's deeply, deeply weird. I'm sure that I left out a whole bunch of stuff there. It's a confusing-ass poem, but that's my general overview of the length of the thing. And it has Rodchenko's collages in there to sort of move you along and to illustrate some of these things. We get some of that classic Mayakovsky imagining himself as Christ imagery, which I guess he can't resist. On the cover of the standalone version that was published, we get this super creepy photo of Lily Brick not looking pretty at all, looking like she's going to send demons into your body or something like that. Staring into the camera really intensely. And we see this a lot in these Rodchenko-Soviet photos. Yeah. Rodchenko must have asked people like stare directly into the camera. And that's yeah. a really weird choice. I wonder the if you have any political swearing. reading of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess that in a certain sense, that's also what Mayakovsky does in his work, where he's like, I'm bearing my soul to you, and you, I guess, will bear your soul to me is sort of well,
0: oh my god. Well, that's what he wants.
1: Well, um, he's trying to bear his soul to her, I suppose, right? Yeah. That's So, of course, she's staring out from the cover of the book.
0: To me, her eyes in this picture look like some sort of bug or something.
1: I mean, it's just weird to look at anyone this intensely, this head on. You're going to pick out any little inconsistency. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a severe look with her hair parted down the center like that when i realized that she was the model for the famous let's get more russian books poster i was like kind of amazed because she's just so happy and so pretty in that photo and in this one she's not happy she's not pretty she's like in soviet russia book reads you (laughs) in soviet russia relationship fucks you
2: That's the third one this show, Frank. You say no Harry <laughs> Potter discussion and yet you throw it on Yakov Smirnoff. How could Thank I not you. though, how
1: could I not? <laughs> That's That's- anyway, what are your thoughts on this poem? The obvious question is, is this a turn away from what he's done previously in the other long-winded overshares, or is this basically more of the same? In what <sighs> ways might it be different? In what ways is he breaking new ground?
2: My sense is that he's trying something new here. He's reaching back sort of into his old bag of tricks, trying to sort of refresh the overshare format, if we will, with some more concrete social concerns, some more existential kind of attempts to fit himself into the grand narrative of history. And this revolution that is going not how people had hoped. And he's trying to put it into a context And I think he's almost like trying to create an illuminated poem with the Rodchenko posters. I see this as his attempt to redefine what poetry is and give it a new function in in daily life. The problem is, I don't think he's successful. I don't think it's a successful poem. I like it for its attempt to really daringly go for that, but it's not a fully successful experiment. That's my take on Prolecto.
0: Yeah. Well, when I suggested it, you know, I kind of picked it for the weird factor overall because when I was reading it, you know, when we've had to do this before, I had to go back and read it again and then read it again and then realize, oh, wait, you know, the same thing might be happening here where it's just bad writing. (laughs) (laughs) When you talk about his basically trying to place himself within this world and within his overshares, I definitely see that because... And here he's referencing, you know, the mountains in the south of Russia, he's referencing Lake Ladoga, he's referencing the Nevsky Prospect block and stuff. I'm still trying to make sense of it, but I definitely see your point here about how this is a little bit different from his other overshares potentially, but... Still, for me, I'm kind of on the fence of whether it's successful
4: or not. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Within the timeline, we haven't gotten to these yet, but this is after he's written 150 million, which is, I guess, I think that my two favorites of his are 150 million and at the top of my voice, I suppose, obviously. But I see him working in some of that type of thing that he was trying to do in 150 million. Which he had sort of considered that poem to have been a failure. And we'll get into why that is in the next episode but that would have been three years earlier. And that's during the period when he's writing all of this propaganda poetry. And some of it's like poetry for readers that they would use to like teach peasants how to read or posters that are telling people things like boil your waters that you don't get dysentery. So he's doing all this very basic stuff to try and help the revolution in every way that he can. And a lot of his old friends are dissing him for it, but he also writes this really whacked out radical, futurist, revolutionary sort of mythological victory poem, 150 million. And then he's kind of bringing a little bit of that in here to his vision of space and his notion of how the revolution is going to bring not just the people, but the objects of Russia together. And for me, 150 million and this poem as well are materialist poetry in the new materialist sense in what I would call an eco-materialist sense, which is to say that he is actually maybe not quite, but beginning to grapple with the notion of how human beings are so intertwined with the objects and machines of their world that like that is the whole that they make. You know, this is how he builds his mythological heroic Ivan in $150 million. If we want to get into ecological readings, Anna, could you please deliver it for us in your best mock Russian accent?
0: In Russia, cholera fucks you.
1: <laughs> no. no, know. No. It should be, in Soviet Russia, cholera shits you. <laughs> oh. Come on. In a campaign like that, and this is going to sound dumb, but you know I love the dumb he's realizing that oh my god people aren't just people people are everything they eat people are the microscopic bacteria that they might ingest or might not ingest depending on whether you boil the water or not and then that is why he's now saying that okay well i'm making a phone call but the magic of the phone is that it does something across a long distance and to then exaggerate that for like the hyperbolic futurist effect it's like yeah the phone is burning hot it's going to claws, an explosion on the other end, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's not so stuff, but he's thinking about the way that we're intertwined with all these machines that connect us together.
0: Oh, the phone is burning, just like my love for this woman. Oh, my God.
1: Well, that's the question. The question is, is it a bad metaphor or is it an attempt to intensify the material? And I'm trying to give it a materialist reading. That's obviously something that's near and dear to my heart. If it's going to have a materialist reading, then it's going to have something to do with the actual physical interaction between these things, even if it's exaggerated and absurd. But the traditional way to read it, you're absolutely right, Anna, is that this is just a lame romantic trope. That this is pure metaphor. It
0: could, be. it could be, but you know, there's multiple layers and everything. And,
1: and I'd even go so far as to say that where we read the lame romantic trope, that's where we get reactionaryism and where we read the material intensity, that's where we get revolutionary poetics.
0: Yeah. I don't think the right reading. I'm just saying it's the easiest reading.
1: We'll return with a little bit more of discussion on pro-Eto next time along with a consideration of Mayakovsky's true epics, the long poems, as well as a couple other remaining political poems of his.
4: You've been listening to Professor Frank Fucile, research assistants Anna Wendorf and Rachel Homily, and special guest Alexander Billet. Century is part of the Modernist Centennial Media Outreach Project, funded in part by the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire Office of Research and Sponsored Programs. The songs in today's episode are Ex-Spectator and Epic Problem on Fugazi's album, The Argument. I've got this epic problem, this epic problem's not a problem for me, and inside You can support The Pointless Century at patreon.com slash The Pointless Century. Support levels include Naval Gazer for $1.11 per month, Shoe Gazer for $4.20 per month, and Void Gazer for $19.17 per month. Make sure to troll us on Twitter at pointlesscent and follow us on Instagram at The Pointless Century. And if you're interested in supporting your favorite anti-fascist cultural studies podcast, click the links in the description for both our Tea Public March and our previously mentioned Patreon. We'll see you next time with another episode of Mayakovsky on The Pointless Century.